future-proof gold with Jonathan McRae, proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you as always for subscribing, rating, downloading, letting people know about the programme. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. We get to those comments and criticisms at the end of the podcast. Uh, first, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Jessamine Fairfield at NUI Galway and uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very well Welcome. Our first story, Jessamine, is Mercury hiding somewhere on Earth? Yeah, so Mercury, the planet in our solar system closest to the sun, actually has kind of a bit of mystery around its origins. Um, You know, Mercury, very close to the sun, very hot. And what's weird about it is it actually has an unusually large metal core. So the metal core of Mercury is about 70% of its mass. It's not um, made Earth's of Mercury, core, though, right? The, the, it's not it's made, not made of, of Mercury. No. But, but like for comparison, Earth's core is only about 2% of its mass. Right. Um, so there's always this question of like, why does Mercury have so much metal on it? And even, you know, now we've looked at exoplanets across the galaxy, right? But even in the thousands of exoplanets that we've identified, only a handful of them have this kind of metallic core the way that Mercury does. So scientists have been asking for a long time, like, what what is this about? Why is Mercury so weird? Um, And how did it get that way? Uh, Since the 80s, the leading theory has been that Mercury is kind of the remnant of a larger proto-Mercury that might have existed earlier, which then effectively got bombarded by space rocks, stripping away a bunch of its outer material to get just this core that we have today. Like, interesting theory, but then how do you prove it when you can't actually go back in time and watch that? And there aren't very many Mercury-like objects to compare it to. Uh, What's cool is this new study out of uh, Princeton and the universities of Lorraine, Liège, and Clermont-Torvain found evidence that this might be true right here on Earth. So they were looking at aubrites, which is a meteorite that was named for the village in France where they were first discovered. It's a type of meteorite that has a chemical composition that's quite different from other meteorites. Like a lot of the meteorites on Earth come from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Um, The chemical composition of aubrites, though, actually matches the kind of lava and chemical composition of the surface conditions of mercury. So interestingly, like the evidence for this sort of proto-mercury bombardment theory has just been sitting here on Earth all along. Um, there have been other meteorites discovered uh, on Earth whose composition is like Mars and the moon. So actually, we've just got kind of pieces of the rest of solar system sitting all over. Um, but it's really exciting to see this evidence for the the origins of Mercury right under our noses. So is the theory that, um, that is it like the moon theory that a bit of Mercury cracked off the side of Earth and left some of it there? Is that what they're talking about? So the idea is that there would have been a really big object originally, you know, all of the sort of inner rocky planets would have started out as much larger potentially than they are now. Um, But that Mercury kind of just got broken up by multiple impacts that took off more of the crust and the mantle, but left the core. And Um, impacts with Earth? Well, with with other bits of rock that were floating around, you know, we started out with a bunch of like rocky debris, and then it all kind of condensed down into the planets that we have now, but over a very long time period. Um, it's just been tricky to figure out where Mercury came from exactly because it's so different from um, both the other planets in our solar system and other exoplanets that we've seen around the place. Shane? Did you know about the planet Vulcan? So before Einstein's work, um, when they were uh, on, on gravity, they thought there must be some giant planet close to the sun that we couldn't see um, that would uh, account for Mercury's orbit. And they called it Vulcan. Um, of course, it doesn't exist, but I think that's cool. It's sort that of a, cool. an imaginary planet that, went the way of Pluto, which was a real... Exactly. 
but no, not a plant. Too complicated. Shane, um, our second story uh, is an interesting one. It's to do with what happens when clothes dry, because this is something I've always wondered. Um, like, how do you go from damp to dry, and, and what is the midway process there? Because it's not as if you're, like, often you're not as if you're heating them. They don't change temperature, but the water just disappears after some time. Why is that? It's a great question. Um, like you think, okay, for water to change, liquid water to change into vapor, it, it would have to boil, right? Yeah. But like no puddle ever reaches 100 degrees. So where does all the water in a puddle go? It, it evaporates, right? So um, the, at the surface of the puddle or it, within the clothes, it's able to, to turn into vapor and escape. Now within clothes, it's more complex because when you wet clothes, the water adsorbs into the fabric so it literally sticks to the fibers of of the clothes and it can also get trapped in the voids and um, between all the f- uh, the fabrics did you and say you absorb believe, uh, absorb so absorb. difference okay. there's a difference uh, i could get into this <laughs> but i perhaps it's another day for the difference between adsorption and absorption okay. but um yeah so with 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 the clothes we actually don't fully understand the process behind drying isn't that incredible um, and it really matters because uh, the tumble dryer is the most energy hungry device in your home. And when you take clothes out of the washing machine, 50% of the mass is water and you need to get it down to two to 3% for them to be considered dry. And the process uh, that uh, that describes that is not fully understood. And that's what this paper is about. Hmm. It was done by, by colleagues in, in France. And what they did was they used an NMR, so nuclear magnetic resonance, also MRI to other people. And they were able to look at the two states of water within the clothes. The first type is the, the liquid water that's bound to the fabric. And the second is the vapor between the, um, the voids in the fabric. And they were able to look at the evolution of the water from liquid phase into gaseous phase or, or gas phase and how it, how it is removed from, from the clothes. And they did that through adding heat and air which is effectively what a tumble dryer does. And so for the first time ever, they're able to more accurately describe the drying process. They say that's important because, well, we could revolutionize the way tumble dryers are designed. And there's a huge industry in clothing that uh, efficiently allows you to remove liquid. So um, when you sweat, you have lots of like liquid stuck to you and you want that to evaporate and um, be removed from your body. Wick, that's it, as quickly as possible. And so... That's a very, very lucrative industry, that clothing industry. So, yeah, basic physics um, that we, we would have thought we understood, but we haven't a clue. I don't know if you fully explained what exactly happening, though, um, in this story, like how clothes do dry. Is that just really complicated? Damn it, Jonathan, the longer you stay on this show, the the more to the point your questions are. I, I, it's, it's really complicated. <laughs> OK, do you know what? Skip it. it. Skip it. We don't need to know. You, you know what? You, you've got great form over the many years you've been doing the programme. If, if you say it's too complicated, we'll just skip it. So, <laughs> Jessamine, our third story has to do with pigs. That's right. So this is new research about pigs trying to correlate the way that they sound, the little grunts and squeals and noises that they make with their emotional state, um, which is, of course, of, of benefit in terms of animal welfare and, you know, commercial pig farming. And if you have a large herd of pigs, how do you make sure that they're all doing OK, you know, in their lives? Um, so pigs are very talkative. Uh, if you don't know that, there's there's lots of existing research on the sounds that pigs make. Um, and this group out of the University of Copenhagen, effectively what they did is they combined their own recordings with those from lots of previous studies of over 400 pigs 
doing things like nursing, meeting family members, waiting around, being surprised, you know, being isolated. Or going handled, to markets. Going to market, staying home. Um, and they developed the most comprehensive audio database of pig grunts ever collected, or as I would call them, most podcasts. Um, they hey. recorded all the sounds. Uh, most, not all. Uh, and they recorded basically every sound a pig could make from from the whole span of their life and then associated it with behavioral observations, right? To say like, well, how is this pig feeling, you know, when this when this thing happened? They found that high-pitched calls are often, you know, for negative emotional states. Low-pitched calls tend to be for more positive situations. But things like short repeating high-pitched calls can also be positive, like kind of pig, pig laugh, like ha um, you can tell I'm a good pig impersonator. And then what the researchers did is developed a neural network that effectively analyzed the frequency and duration of these calls to try to predict the emotional states of the pigs. Um, and their neural network had 91% accuracy in terms of the call being either positive or negative um, emotionally, as well as an 81% accuracy on predicting the context. So again, in terms of monitoring well-being in commercial pig herds, um, this is really helpful information. And, you know, pigs are pigs are very smart. They're very social animals. So if we're going to be raising them commercially, we should probably make sure they're, they're living their best lives. Um, this is a really cool tool to be able to do that. Pigs? are always described as smart, but um, I have yet to have a pig beat me a chess. And I'm not very well, good at chess. Well, you know, pigs don't have access to as many chess clubs as people that's true, do. That's true. Um, this is nonsense talk. But uh, wondering, like, how far are we from a up collar for pigs or, or dogs, for that matter? Like, you know, if, if we're getting these grunts and turning them into positive slash negative, could we be more nuanced in the future? And the pig would say, nice hat, Jonathan, or whatever it felt like saying on a day. I mean, I love that idea, and knowing very little about what would it would take to make it happen, I'd say we're very close. Let's skip that one. Well, too. let's speculate widely, though. That, that's that's kind of what we do here, you know. <laughs> no, it's so. not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, so, uh, is this a is this a this research project is the plan then to to create sort of a a sensor around farms to listen out for pigs in distress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like if you had a bunch of sort of microphones around your your pig areas um, and you could sort of say, oh, the pigs in this section don't sound happy or like these pigs are doing all right. Um, one of the situations that actually the, the researchers cited as important to detect quickly is apparently a big issue is piglets being crushed by their mother accidentally, which isn't great. Um, but obviously, if you realize that that uh, a pig has accidentally rolled onto her piglets quickly, you can just roll her back off again. No problem. You know, no harm, no foul. Um, so being able to figure out quickly that that's happened um, and respond and you could, you know, you could have like a robotic pig mover eventually. It's okay. all, Do you know, what? it's all in the future. <laughs> Science. Let's just pretend this news round is going really well and move on to our final story. <laughs> a robotic pig mover. Um, Shane, the, fa- last, the, the last story is to do with the smell of burning rubbish. Yeah, I didn't know about this condition called parosmia which is like you can you can smell and taste regular foods um, in, a, in a very distorted way. Things like coffee and onions and that are absolutely disgusting to people with this condition. And we don't really understand why uh, they have this unusual distorted uh, sense of smell and taste. And that's what researchers in Reading have been working on. And they've discovered secrets as to why certain foods and drinks have that horrible, disgusting smell and taste. They looked at coffee in particular, which to people with parosmia has the smell and taste. I don't know what the taste of burning rubbish is. So, yeah, imagine your cup of joe in the morning having that kind of odor 
of burning rubbish. You probably and wouldn't drink they, coffee. No, you probably wouldn't. Um, tea, I suppose. So uh, what they what they did was they um, they used capillary action, right, to separate the uh, hundreds of molecules associated with the aroma of coffee. And what they were able to do was separate them by size because small molecules travel through this capillary tube very quickly and large ones are slow. And so if you're able to catch the exhaust at different time periods, you can isolate the individual aroma molecules. And then they got 29 volunteers, some of whom have parosmia, to sniff them all and to describe them. And uh, they were able to, uh, the people with parosmia, to identify the foul-smelling chemicals. And I wasn't too surprised at the family of chemicals that were identified, thiols. When I was in, in Trinity many years ago with Jessman, there was one scientist on the corridor who used to work with thiols, and they smell disgusting, like sick. So it's sulfurous. And um, so, yeah, the the, comic, uh, the the molecule in coffee that is offensive to people with parosmia is a thiol. And um, they're very, very sensitive to it. The scientists are saying this is really helpful because it's the first step at understanding the mechanism of the, of the condition. Before, there's so little known about it that people were often told it was in their heads, this distorted sense of taste and smell. So now we know that there is something and there is a chemical that's uh, interacting with the central nervous system. And it's the first step in the process to, to truly understand the kind of lock and key mechanism that might be uh, behind uh, this condition. And perhaps then in, in turn, we could look at ways of addressing that for people through medication, etc. How many people have this condition, roughly? A lot, right? Uh, so I, I, I believe it's millions of people worldwide, right? Like five, six, seven million people worldwide. But of course, issues around taste and smell have become far more prevalent due to COVID. Yeah. So people have, have like with the early versions of COVID started to to lose their their these senses. And for many people, they haven't fully come back. I have a friend, a real foodie, and her, her sense of taste has not yet come back. And um, she ain't happy about it. No, I'm sure. <laughs> No, well, I would say, too, this would be really helpful for pregnant people who often have major changes in the way that they taste and smell things. I know for me in the first trimester of pregnancy, I was totally off coffee. I couldn't be in the same room as onions or garlic being prepared. Mm. Like, And it was crazy because I loved those things before and I didn't think I was going to change what I was eating very much. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're making coffee? I'm leaving. Wow. <laughs> and I had no idea why. And it did change back. But like, it's very weird to suddenly just be like, oh, I, I nope, that's not for me anymore. Do you know no, we wow. did a really fascinating piece on the controversy in the science of smell. There's a sort of a, a maverick researcher who is claiming that, um, a, that you would typically imagine that how we smell uh, has to do with the shape of the molecule and how it binds to our smell receptors, right? Because that's what that's sort of what we what you would imagine, knowing what we know about receptors and how they how they process molecules. I. I I'm paraphrasing someone else's intelligence here. This is not something I've discovered. No, that's right. Science. That's so, lock and key. Yeah. yeah. But 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 um, there is a theory um, that's floating around that is getting a bit of traction that actually um, what makes things smell different to our noses is actually the vibration frequency of the molecules rather than 
the the shape of the molecules themselves. And this has been tested by looking at the vibration frequencies of different types of smells that are you know molecularly very different in shape, but actually have the same vibration frequency and find that they actually smell quite differently. You can actually predict what something might smell like if you know what the vibration frequency is and 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 not not anything about the molecular composition of it. We will play that um, episode in the Future Proof Gold episode uh, in your podcast feed. So if you're a podcast listener, listen to it on, on Tuesday. Absolutely thought it was fascinating. If you can monetize that um, and apply it to coffee, you, you can retire early Like, because the amount of mumbo-jumbo science that goes into making coffee is incredible. I'm not saying what you're talking about is mumbo-jumbo, but if you can connect it to coffee making and sell it for like six euros a cup, cha-ching. Yeah, or, or, or you know, if, if we can figure out how to synthesize any smell, you know, we are, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of money in it. Um, fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Jasmine Fairford from NUI Galway. Thanks as always. Now, of the five traditional senses, smell is definitely the overlooked and underappreciated hipster's choice. I mean, who would pick sense of smell to keep over any of the other four? And yet... It can be so evocative and so surprising in its impact on us. If you've ever had a smell bring you back to a very specific time or feeling, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So how does this work? Luca Turin is a biophysicist, group leader in quantum neurobiology at the Fleming Institute in Athens and author of The Secret of Scent, Adventures in Perfume and the Science of Smell. Welcome to the program, Luca. Um, Hello. Would you mind giving us a, a quick biology lesson on the 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 way smell works? When when we crack open a loaf of bread, what's happening in that bread that it speaks to our mind? Uh, so, well, the first thing you have to know is that the the bit in your nose that smells things that come its way is the only part of the brain which is actually outside the skull. It's, um, it's basically dangling in the breeze. And it's, so these are neurons from the brain that have shot out little tendrils down into your, your um, nasal cavity through a bone which is full of holes. And they're waiting for smells to come along. And when you break bread, you release a bunch of, actually quite a complicated mixture, of chemicals, the typical complicated mixtures of roasted goods, and they fly up into the nose and they land on the olfactory epithelium, which is really made up of mostly of, of these neurons. And they cause them to fire off in some pattern, which once processed by our brain says bread. And it also says, hmm, which is a different story. <laughs> well, um, what are these molecules? Are they like tiny pieces of bread, like nanoscopic crumbs? Is that is that what they are? No, they're much smaller than that. They're actual um, um, volatiles, so that basically they're like typically six, eight carbon uh, molecules. So they're from one end to the other, the molecules would be uh, barely a nanometer. So uh, a crumb on that scale would be a thousand times bigger. 10,000 times bigger, even right. the smallest crumb. So no, they're individual molecules. And they are set free how exactly? How, how do they end up in the air? 
Well, so this is a, an important point that um, odorants in general, that is, odorant is the, is the, is the uh, pretentious term for smelly molecules. Um, hmm. Odorants, um, the reason they, they leave the bread and fly up your nose is because they have very few things binding them to what's around them. They tend to be rather slippery. Uh, in other words, they're volatile. So that typically, if you leave a piece of rock a thousand years, it's still going to be there. But if you leave out, let's say, a beaker of uh, vodka, it's going to be gone. And that's because the molecules of vodka, of alcohol, of water, make weaker bonds to each other than those of rock, and therefore they fly off. And the ultimate, of course, is things that are gases at room temperature. They just don't even, they don't even stick to each other unless you cool them or compress them. So. We're always when you're dealing with smell, you're always dealing with molecules that are that are very slippery. And is it fair to say that potentially all molecules could smell, but we have evolved just to add a sense to some of them? Well, so um, there are a few basic requirements for a molecule to have a smell. It has to be. Uh, are these called than olfactants? Is that is that what we call these molecules? Um, people call them olfactants. People call them odorants. Uh, in the in the fragrance industry, they're called just called raw materials or aroma chemicals. Um, I think odorants is probably the the most neutral um, uh, term for them. Right. So the so the requirements for them are actually you know, interesting. I mean, they they basically. They cannot be larger than about 18 carbons. Any molecule, if you, when, you, when, you, when you go up in size, you keep adding carbons and you get all manner of interesting woody and ambery and musky smells and stuff. And then, boom, at between 18 and 19, the thing goes dead. There's no smell whatsoever. Huh. And, and, it, and it can't be that they're, just, that they're not flying off. It's because they're still flying off. I mean, they can't be an abrupt difference. It's all going to be gradual. So clearly what's going on is that the receptors are no longer, the receptors in our nose are no longer able to fit them. Right. Uh, and a pretty tight size requirement. And so at 19 carbons, nothing. At 20 carbons, absolutely nothing. In fact, you can use a ton of 20 carbon alcohols and have zero smell. Hmm. Um, if we think about a dog's nose versus a human's nose, is it that they have um, more receptors, different types of receptors, or do they have a wider a range of molecules they can send? How do they pick up, you know, a, a trail from a kilometer away? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. I think I think there may be several things involved. One is, uh, as Richard Feynman famously said. It's easy. Their nose is closer to the ground. Um, <laughs> so that was one answer. I think the other answer is they seem to have a much bigger olfactory epithelium than we do, so, you know, four or six times bigger. Um, That's the bulb also, of the nose, is it? Uh, the, actual, the actual sensory uh, part is really large. Right. Okay. Um, but the other thing, which I think is very important, is that the they their their bones inside their head is, are, are arranged in such a way as to guarantee a good flow of air past the olfactory epithelium, uh, which ours are not. So they they really extract the maximum amount of smell from uh, from a sniff, which we really don't. Mm. And I think that's their secret, really. So what about this controversial issue of the science of how we smell? I know you have been in a long-standing sort of professional jousting match with other 
researchers in trying to determine what's actually going on with the molecule and what makes it have that specific sense. Is it shape or is it the vibration that the molecule gives off? So maybe the easier one to start with is is the, the theory you don't subscribe to, which is the idea that the molecules have a certain shape and that's why they have the smell they do. So th- th- that, that, of course, is the standard explanation for, for smell. And I believe in it to some extent insofar as ultimately shape must determine how tightly uh, a molecule binds to a receptor. If the, if the fit is good, if the molecule is comfortable in the receptor, the, the binding will be very tight and that will be a strong smell. So but when you that say that, just you, to drill down, you're talking about a 3D shape of these flying yeah, sm- smelly molecules that that's hit... Right. The, the physical neuron in your brain, and if they right. clock in like Tetris, you're going to get a strong smell? Right. Yeah, so but so basically, if, if you imagine the receptor be the size of a potato, the the molecule will be the size of a pea. Right. Okay? Uh, but it's not a smooth, round pea. It's a pea with angles and, and little fridge magnets attached to it. So, oh. so it's going to bind to a pocket in the potato, and if it binds like hell it will create a stronger uh, reaction than if it binds loosely. Right. Now, uh, that tells you how strong an odorant is. But it doesn't tell you what it smells of. Um, and the question of exactly how we distinguish, I mean, bear in mind, humans can distinguish essentially an infinity of smells. I mean, nobody's ever reached the ultimate limit of telling molecules apart. Okay? Right. Not only that, but... The way we smell them is very peculiar because we can smell their component parts. So that when you give somebody a molecule that is, I don't know, six carbons attached to, let's say, CN, carbon nitrogen, the person will say, I can smell the carbon nitrogen. It smells metallic. And when you take that carbon nitrogen, the CN group, the nitrile group, as it's called in chemistry, and you put it on, let's say, a lemon background, a molecule that would otherwise smell of lemon, you get metallic lemon. You put it on cucumber, you get metallic cucumber, and so on. So we smell analytically. We smell the bits and pieces of the molecule. And that's extremely difficult to explain by a shape mechanism because, in a sense, uh, the shape of the nitrile would be the same as the shape of a million other things how do we know it's in there right and so what you're saying is normally for for a sense to explain it saying it was just shape alone there would need to be one neuron that was shaped exactly the right way for every single smell that's right and but well not exactly you could always have a combination you could always have the same odorant, and we know that's the case, binding to different extents to many different receptors. Right. And you could, you could, you could, in principle, assume that the exact pattern of binding uh, determines ultimately what the thing smells of. But that still doesn't explain how you can detect within the molecule particular groups of atoms. Okay. So this prevailing theory that's in the the science of scent is that. Um, the shape is very important for the type of smell that we give. Um, but you subscribe to a different theory, and that has to do with the vibration of molecules. Can you explain what, what do you mean by that? 
So this is an idea. So molecules are, 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 are made of masses, atoms are masses, small masses connected by springs. So if you can imagine if you make a molecular model of, um, of, a, of, a, of a molecule made up atom of, of masses and springs and you hit it with a hammer, it's going to make a particular sound. Yeah. Okay. And likely a different molecule will make a different sound. It's a bit like musical instruments. So this idea has been around since the 20s that actually what we smell is the way these molecules um, vibrate. And um, the unfortunate thing for that theory, which I, by the way, always considered completely bonkers, um, was that there was no known mechanism for any cell to be able to detect molecular vibrations. And the reason is that the instruments we use to do that are about uh, two foot square and a foot high, uh, and they contain all manner of prisms and lasers. And if you look up somebody's nose, you don't see any prisms or lasers. So right, that, but, that theory was well, right. Was but there's lots of things that um, we've recreated uh, from the body that are much bigger because of our lack of ability to to recreate that biology. It is, I mean, size is indeed. not the the issue, right? No, indeed. But optics is a problem. You could never use infrared, actual infrared uh, spectroscopy in the body because water absorbs infrared. Right. So it was a genuinely deep physical reason for this not to work. So when I discovered, um, I was always interested in smell, and I discovered that there was, in fact, another way to measure molecular vibrations using electrons, which had been known since 1966. I thought to myself, aha, well, electrons are everywhere in biology. It's easy with the bits and pieces that are given to us as part of the sort of um, spare parts of, uh, of, of biophysics to construct a biological spectroscope from known um, phenomena. And so that's what I did. But I can tell you that what really convinced me is uh, that is that this was worth, uh, you know, wasting my life on, so to speak, um, was the fact that I was, uh, when I was in Lisbon on a trip, I calculated uh, on my little hand calculator the frequency of vibration of of boron hydrides. So these are BH compounds. Boron is a weird element left of uh, carbon. And they turned out to be identical to the frequency of vibration of sulfur hydrides. And sulfur hydrides is a famous rotten egg smell. So I thought, wait a minute. If boron hydrides uh, vibrate at the same frequency and they are the only thing that does, then they should smell of sulfur as well. So when I got back to London... I called up a company that makes these boron hydrides that are rocket fuels. Rocket and fuels? I spoke to the, yeah, mostly, yes. Right. Is that <laughs> not called, something that's quite dangerous to stick up your nose? Yeah, indeed, absolutely. So I, I, I called the, uh, their chief chemist and I said, um, could I have a sample? And he said, well, our minimum sam sample size is 10 tons. <laughs> so, I, so I said, that's not so good. <laughs> that's, so, that's a pretty big sample. And I, so I, I said, okay, okay. Um, can you um, can you tell me what they smell of? And this, the line went real quiet. You know, I could hear the hiss, and he says, "Sir, I try not to smell them," <laughs> and which is sensible, partly because they're toxic. But then the next day, I found out I could order one gram of a perfectly respectable boron uh, through Sigma, which is a, a very common supplier for chemicals, and I got it in the lab. And together with a colleague next door, we opened it. Gingerly, it doesn't explode. It, it's fairly safe. And we smelt it, and it smelled uh, intensely of sulfur. 
So this and is a crazy idea that you yeah. are proposing. You're proposing that it's not the shape of the molecules that come off different foods that gives them their smell, but the almost the tune, the, the vibration yes. that comes off the molecule. And in that way, if, for example, some molecule that was based in carbon uh, or or sulfur or any other any other atom gave off the same vibration it would smell the same even though it was a completely different material and a completely different compound yes so that obviously is why people don't like this idea because that's that's a, i mean that's a very it's a very wild idea because when we think of um how we taste that's very much it's a, it's agreed that we taste shapes right uh sort of <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah probably yes right well but not really because i'm i'm actually i'm actually being a, being a, a disingenuous here because if you consider the sweet taste uh lead tastes sweet thallium tastes sweet uh stevia tastes sweet uh and and sugar tastes sweet and those things are a uh, factor of 100 in size Hmm. So, and what shape does a lead ion have? It's a sphere. So how do you, or how do they win this battle for good? How do you definitively prove how the human nose smells? So that's a good question. I think it's easier for the vibrational theory to prove itself than for the shape theory to prove itself because the shape theory is so amorphous that it makes actually very few predictions. Uh, if you look at it, the, the shape theory just says, well, if you have the right things in the right places, they'll smell right. That's not a theory. That's a hand-waving. Uh, and in fact, all of fragrance chemistry demonstrates that shape theory doesn't work. Because if it did, there wouldn't be 300 chemists in the big fragrance companies. It'd only be three or, you know, three or four or something. So the mere fact that they have two nine-story buildings with chemists at every floor tells you they don't have a theory. Now, with vibration, um, with vibration, it's a bit different because you, you can, in principle, conceive, imagine an experiment in which you either demonstrate the flow of electrons it's not through the receptor as they're being probed. That's not off the cards. But there are also some more subtle ones that we're working on right now, which um, use tools of molecular biology to, a to ask which receptors are activated. And these were, were invented by a brilliant colleague of mine, Makis Koulakis, here in, in Athens. And we're going to be doing them in the next six months to a year. And I think they might actually provide a proper answer. So I expect um, we will get an answer. There probably is a way of, 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 uh, of, of confirming, you know, of provide. but actually, actually, let me say this. There's a paper out there from New York City, from uh, New York University, in fact, um, where they've shown that uh, re um, olfactory receptor neurons can, in fact, in some cases, respond all or none to hydrogen and deuterium odorants. So light or heavy odorants. What does Identical that mean? shape, different vibration. Well, you take an odorant, uh, whatever, um, octanal, somaldehyde, and you replace every hydrogen atom in the molecule with a deuterium atom, which is identical in size and in shape and orientation and everything. Um, 
and but completely different in vibrations because it's twice the mass. So when you do that, you find that most receptor neurons can't really tell them apart, but a small fraction of neurons in the, I think, the rat olfactory epithelium can tell them apart, and in fact, do tell them apart completely. In other words, only uh, deuterium or hydrogen turns them on. Now, I will say this with absolute confidence, there is no explanation for that fact <laughs> other than molecular vibrations, even though the authors desperately tried to wriggle out of that during the discussion. So, so what you're uh, saying is this particular smelly molecule has exactly the same shape, but a different yes. vibration. Yes. And as a result, it smells differently. That's right. And the neurons mm. perceive, perceive one or the other. Wow. So does that not make you burn with the need to prove yourself right definitively? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Consuming passion, yes. But uh, combined with uh, cold um, uh, de determination, because um, the, the trick is to really figure out an experiment which is really unanswerable. You know, mm. uh, and and it's not so easy. I mean, some of the things we did, you know, we showed that 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 fl fruit flies can tell vibrations apart. We showed that humans can tell vibrations apart. But it's always been kind of a loophole. And also remember, I mean, the people who are who are so dead against vibration are people who don't know any physics and not much chemistry, and therefore they find it they find the whole idea of electron tunneling really scandalously alien. You know, now the fact that all of biology is ultimately quantum mechanics uh, scares the bejesus out of them. They'd rather not think about it. They hope it happens after they're gone. So that's been a problem also. Uh, Luca Turin, author of The Secret of Scent, Adventures in Perfume and the Science of Smell. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Future Proof Gold with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.